The climate crisis and environmental issues are becoming pressing problems. Awareness of them is on the rise and we constantly hear in the media and on social networks about global warming and other environmental aspects. But what is the connection of those subjects to our identity as Jews? What does our heritage have to say about climate change? And how do Jewish communities respond to one of the most important issues of the 21st century? I'm Dr. Afat Sofa, and today in Jewish World, a podcast by World Jewish Congress Israel, we'll discuss the relationships between Judaism and the environment. We'll talk with Professor Alon Tal, former Knesset member, about Israel's response to climate change and about the unique Jewish values that can influence Israel's actions. We'll also be speaking with Professor Lior Herman, where we'll discuss the special story of kosher electricity and what we can learn from it about Jewish communities facing climate change. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Connecting Israel to Jewish communities around the world. Alon Tal is a professor in Tel Aviv University for Public Policy and Climate. He was the head of the Knesset Committee of Environment and Climate Change and Health, and he is the founder of a number of organizations in the climate and environmental fields. Today, he is writing his new book, Making Climate Tech Work, which will be published in early 2024. Alon, thank you for being with us. I'm delighted to be here, Frat, and greetings to all the uh, listeners. I hope your temperatures are reasonable today. What are the main events in Israel's response to the climate crisis? Try and give us a short history of Israel's actions. Since 1992, when the international community signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, Israel's consistent role and policy has been one of obfuscation and paralysis. Unfortunately, Israel, for most of the last 30 years, decided that this was not a problem that it should involve it, and therefore somewhat disingenuously signed up as a developing country, which in the UN terminology meant they didn't have to do anything in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Of course, that was no way reflected the economic reality. Israel's very much a developed country and has a very, very high carbon footprint. Recently, Israel has made um, a change in that statement, but as much as we are starting to talk the talk, we have not yet begun to walk to walk. And therefore, Israel's uh, performance is, is deplorable. I mean, if last year 80% of the vehicles in Norway that were sold were electric, Israel, a teeny country which could do very well with electric vehicles, has less than 2% electric vehicles. If we have a situation in Kenya where almost 100% of electricity comes from renewables, Israel has just crossed the 10% mark for solar energy and practically no one to speak of. I could go on with other examples, but unfortunately, this is not an area where our uh, third Jewish commonwealth has been outstanding, but we could be. And how do you see the events that shaped Israel's response? Was it more of, was it a conscious choice to to have that policy or lack of action or... Was it more of a, a, an, an accident? What, what shape, events shaped it? 
A doctoral student of mine, Lucy Michaels, wrote her dissertation and developed a theory, which I think has been, uh, we published on it, and I think it's been confirmed time and again, that Israel had developed an exclusive, exclusionary position. In other words, a sense of that we are special. Uh, Israel's circumstances are unique. For one, we're an energy island. We don't really have neighbors that can send us uh, hydroelectric electricity. And even if our neighbors were friendly enough to offer them, they don't have excess electricity. So that's one of the areas that makes us unique. Israel has uh, pressing security concerns, which always offers an excuse for inaction. We have higher priorities. The list goes on and on. But at the end of the day, while the rest of the world slowly but surely started getting with the program, Israel did not. And we see that with the present government, which has gone, uh, taken a few steps backward from where uh, the 24th Knesset Knesset brought us. It canceled a very important uh, tax on plastic and single-use utensils. It uh, canceled a climate uh, carbon tax. Let's remember, 61 countries in the world now have carbon taxes. This is standard practice. Israel's just not there. And the reason, I would think, is that there's a great deal of, um, how should I put it, there's a serious lack of awareness about the severity of the crisis and just how much Israel is contributing. One argument that drives me crazy, and you hear this all the time, is that we're a teeny country, and therefore if Israel even became a carbon-neutral nation and the first one to get to zero, net zero emissions, the world's global warming would continue. And that's true. But the logic behind that I find to be ethically reprehensible. It's the same thing as saying, well, why should I pay taxes? If I don't pay taxes, it's not going to affect the national budget. And that's true. But those kind of activities are not uh, certainly not appropriate for a Jewish state. Often in these issues, I offer an analogy from the military. You know, anybody who fought in the Israeli army in the combat role became very well of a certain ritual called the stretcher run, where you take a soldier on a stretcher and go for ridiculous distances, 40, 50, 60 kilometers, to prove that you can, in time of warfare, take whoever gets injured to safety. But what always happens in these cases, there's always one person who doesn't take their turn under the stretcher. And what's happened is the world has become a unhealthy place. We are spiraling out of control in terms of the climate. And as the whole international community got under the global stretcher to take our planet to a healthier place, Israel is that, uh, how should I put it, uh, socially uh, unaccepted person who is opting out. And that's really, really intolerable. You pointed on the fact that it, Israel is obviously a Jewish state. And so the, it would be interesting. Have you ever explored the... Um, Jewish ethical issues in regard to the environment? As a traditional Jew who takes his Judaism very seriously, I always argue that my Jewish identity and my environmental identity are synonymous. One need only open the book of Genesis to see a whole, I would say, narrative of stewardship and environmental protection, starting with our commandment to take care of the Garden of Eden and going on to the biodiversity protection in the Book of Noah. You can see the Tower of Babel as some sort of analogy for uh, technology gone awry. There's the debate between the herders of Abraham and Lot, which is the first discussion that I know in any kind of literature that acknowledges the role of carrying capacity. The list goes on and on. Our heritage is an extremely green heritage, and therefore it behooves a Jewish state to manifest those ideals. If we can shift gears for a moment and go to the more practical sides of these um, climate conferences, 
What has happened in the last three years in the conferences in Glasgow and in Sham? What has Israel brought to the table? That's an excellent uh, question. Uh, I think we need to frame this for listeners in the following context. The original convention to protect the climate internationally was ratified around 1995. It was signed in 1992. Unfortunately, it was a litany of missed opportunities and inaction. That all changed in 2015 in Paris. So the Paris Agreement heralded a new orientation. Rather than coming in with what we call a top-down approach with the international community uh, basically levied expectations on the different countries, each country was supposed to come with a nationally determined contribution, a action plan, which will specify what it's going to do to rein in its emissions. These plans, every five years, are supposed to be updated so that we can ratchet our way towards a better and better outcome. So in in 2015, Israel signed the Paris Accord, as did most nations of the world, and we put in our first nationally determined contribution. It was a fairly pitiful document because basically what we said is, we're going to try to reduce our emissions on a per capita basis, which we have done. But Israel is a very rapidly growing country, which is probably the source of our environmental discomfort at present. And so as a result of that, the overall emissions increased at a time when the scientists were saying we have to decrease 45% over the next 30 years. Well, the good news is that before Glasgow, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, was briefed and realized that the time had come for Israel to step up and join that um, storied group of international countries who had committed themselves to what we call net zero 2050 targets. By the year 2050, which is not so far away, it's only 27 years away, by the year 2050, we are supposed to be at a place where we're carbon neutral, where our overall emissions of greenhouse gases are balanced by anything we take off. So basically, it means a decarbonization of our electricity. It means getting out of all fossil fuel vehicles. It means leaving behind animal-based agriculture and moving towards cultured meat and the like. It's a very, very dramatic transition, but we have to do it if we want to leave our children a planet that's not uh, in danger of a cataclysmic climate catastrophe. Israel made that uh, promise and even agreed in the, uh, the coalition agreement to have a climate law. But unfortunately, the clerks in the finance ministry were less enamored, had a very short-term economic time horizon, and therefore they put some uh, delays in it. And the Ministry of Environment, quite frankly, blinked. In my committee, we convened hearings about the proposed climate law, and we pointed out that it leaves us way behind all the other Western countries. Of course, it's better than nothing. But not a lot better than nothing when you're talking about a 27% reduction in emissions by 2030, well, Denmark will be an 80% reduction by then. So we're really very far behind where the world is. And quite honestly, every year the emissions have been going up as a result. Anyway, that's where we are now. Glasgow was very important for putting that net zero commitment out there. Uh, Sharam already, we were starting to backpedal. But there is a very nice story that did happen in Sharm, and I think listeners should hear about it, because as somebody who tends to point to the half-empty glass, there are good things, and we should be proud of them as well. At the Sharm el-Sheikh COP27, which was the most recent conference of the parties for the United Nations Con- uh, Convention, Israel signed a memorandum of understanding with Jordan and the United Emirates, in which we agreed to deliver water, desalinized water to Jordan, which is probably the most scarce water-scarce country on the planet, in return for receiving clean 
electricity, presumably from solar energy. Jordan is about three times the size of Israel and is almost entirely hyper-arid deserts. They have the land to produce copious quantities of clean electricity. Israel does not. And so this notion of, you know, they call it the water energy nexus, which was originally uh, proposed by Econet, an NGO, really was the first time when we have broken out of this energy island dynamic and seen the climate challenge as a regional challenge. And I think that's very, very hopeful. Uh, the, The agreement was almost canceled because the present government doesn't have the best relations with our neighbors, to put it mildly, but I'm glad that it has not been, and I'm hopeful that it will yet be implemented. I think you've really touched a very important point where, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm seeing that Israel could become a better international player if it engages in the environmental sphere. Well, there's one area where Israel can rightfully be proud, and that is the area of climate tech. It took a while to get going. The high-tech or nation or the startup nation that Israel is very famous for being uh, was not initially in the ecosystem of climate tech. But although we were a late adapter, not an early adapter, recently we've seen some amazing things. And most people are unaware of just how dramatic the Israeli um, entrepreneurial spirit is affecting the climate tech world. I'll give you just a couple examples because I think the listeners should be available. It's maybe Israel's best kept secret and I don't know why. Let's take a company called Solar Edge. Solar Edge was founded by four guys from the uh, intelligence technology unit of the Israeli army and they realized that the inverters inside of solar systems, those are the, the contraptions that take uh, DC electricity and convert it to AC electricity, were not efficient. And they managed to improve it dramatically and uh, started making them. Eventually, when it became a public company, it was about worth a billion dollars. Today, it's worth $16 billion, probably the largest solar company in the world. And uh, with production facilities in China and uh, just bought the largest battery, battery company in South Korea. Of course, under the United States Inflation Reduction Act, they're going to have to build a major plant in, uh, Nor- in the United States to balance the one they have in Mexico. We're talking about about 40 to 45% of the solar systems on people's roofs have Israeli technology on the inside, which is developed to this very day in Herzliya. And the pilot plant is based in the Nazareth elite, uh, or Nofa Galil, as we call it today, industrial area. So that's just one example of many. And I could go into other details, if you'll give me the time, to talk a little about Israel's extraordinary contribution to alternative proteins. Companies like Remilk, which literally produces milk without cows, but it's the actual milk based on the same proteins. Or olive farms, which is skipping over the hamburgers and going right to the steaks. But rather than giving you a plant-based steak, is actually basing it on cultured beef uh, proteins, but without having any animal suffering. These are incredibly important because the 25% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from the food system. And Israel is a major player, maybe the second largest country in terms of making a contribution to this critical area for climate change mitigation. It's amazing that Israel is indeed capable of finding solutions. Israel is very good at finding um, forward-facing technological solutions. And what are the unique challenges that Israel is facing um, vis-a-vis the climate crisis? That's an extremely important question. Listeners have to understand that Israel is what's defined as a climate hotspot. Climate change affects everybody. If you're in Maui, you found that out the hard way in the last uh, month, as they are finding it out in Pakistan a year ago when 40% of the country was underwater, in Australia with the fires. 
nobody is safe from from uh, climate change. But Israel, as part of the Middle East, really has uh, manifests climate change far more dramatically than other places. I'll give you an example. Global temperatures have increased on average in the last 40 years by about 1.2, 1.3 degrees. We're trying to keep it below 1.5. Israel, we crossed 1.5 a long time ago. Already since the 1950s, we've seen dramatic rise in our sea level, but only about 24 centimeters. But they expect by the end of the century, the National Luminological Organization, which just finally in February of 2023 put out its estimates, expect that sea level along the Mediterranean could go more than two meters high. In other words, if you're thinking of investing in real estate in Israel, you don't want to do it on the Yarkon Street in Tel Aviv because you're going to be inundated. So this is not our fault. We just happen to be in a, in a hot spot. And we see it also with all of the usual climate pathologies. Take the frequency of forest fires. When we had the major fire in the Carmel, they said, oh, it's a once in a century fire. And then in 2019, we had a massive fire in Beit Keshet, my favorite forest, which decimated a lovely, lovely area in the Galilee. In 1920, it was the fire in Modi'in, 2021, Jerusalem. Mega fires are becoming a situation because the rains come much later. We know from our tradition, they're supposed to come in Sukkot, but they don't usually come now in Sukkot that early. And there's very, very dry conditions so that even a small spark or a, a negligent uh, picnicker can create a massive conflagration. How do Israel's demographics influence the climate crisis? Well, you now put me on my favorite topic, but one that people really are willing to discuss. Israel in 1950 had a million people, 1962 million people, 1973 million. You can do the math up to 9.5 million today. Only now it's growing faster, 1.5 million people a decade, as you'd expect from any kind of a geometric function. What does this mean? That means that any area where we had an environmental problem, it's much, much harder to solve, and climate change is one of them. Because every child in Israel that is born is born with a God-given carbon footprint to run an air conditioner and to take a plane every so often and to live a Western lifestyle. And so basically our situation is analogous to somebody who's on a treadmill and is trying to run in place. We're trying to reduce our per capita emissions, our, our collective emissions, but we keep adding more people, 2% a year. And that's because Israeli women have very, very large families, 3.1 children per family. Now, that is a dramatically large number of uh, children relative to the OECD average. And uh, it didn't happen by itself. It's a result of public policies, policies that made a lot of sense in the 1950s and 60s when Israel was a, a sparsely populated country that needed people to defend the country, to create demographic facts on the barter. But today, we are the most crowded country in practice in the West. And by 2050, we will be more crowded than any country except Bangladesh. So when you're in such a circumstances, the policies today, which have such aggressive subsidies for large families, make no sense. And they certainly make it impossible for us to be a responsible climate player. There's no question that it's an uh, inconvenient fact to discuss the connection between demography and and uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I was invited by the uh, at the UN conference in three years ago in, in Madrid to discuss this issue. But if we don't discuss it, we're not going to get anywhere. The same is true of Africa, by the way. Africa, which had 200 million people in 1950, is expected to have 4 billion people by the end of the century. If we don't address the problem of overpopulation in Africa, we're all going to cook together because it's one atmosphere that we share. So this is a global problem and Israel's part of it and our population growth is part of that problem. Indeed. 
As we said earlier, our connections with Judaism and the environment are, is really something where we have an extra angle here. Can we learn anything from our Jewish heritage about the right actions towards climate change? Well, the first thing we have to remember is that our faith is an action-based faith. We don't, uh, I don't want to disparage any other religions. I have great respect for everybody, but we don't, it's not enough to go in and confess one's sins and expect to be good off the hook. You have to change your actions. If you've insulted somebody, you have to apologize to them. In other words, people say, oh, I love my grandmother. Well, do you ever visit her? Do you send her letters? No. Well, then you know, maybe don't love her so much, according to the Jewish perspective. So as a, as a mitzvah-based religion, we know that it's not enough to express vague sentiments about how important the environment is and how much we'd like to live in harmony with nature. No, we have to do things about that. And that gives us a unique advantage. I'd also say that the, the message of Judaism is very, very clear. And um, for me, it starts with the Ten Commandments. You know, we're commanded not to steal. And by our inaction in the area of climate, in fact, we are stealing from our children the kind of stable climate which allows us to lead a good life. They are going to be beleaguered by heat waves, by extreme weather events, and by a planet which is much less friendly for human civilization than what which we had. And stealing from children, that's a particularly egregious violation. So that starts at, at that. And the intergenerational justice, we all remember every Tubishvat, the story of Honi Hamagel, Honi the circle maker, who uh, was once approached somebody who's planting a tree. He said, old man, you're 70 year old, you're planting a carob tree. This tree's not going to give fruit for another 40, 50 years. What are you, crazy? And he turns to Honi the circle maker, who was a rabbi, a great rabbi in the galley, and said, you know, just as my father planted trees for me and his father planted for him, I'm planting for my children. So we do have this intergenerational responsibility as an integral part of the Jewish way of thinking. And it's very much part of a sociology, the deferred gratification, making sure your kids get a good education and sacrificing if you don't have money to get them there. That is a Jewish perspective, which I think cuts across all of the different um, denominations or levels of religiosity that you find in Jewish community. And that kind of commitment, we all love our kids very deeply, Israelis, Jews around the world, and that is maybe the basis for what allow us to change. And synagogues and Jewish communities around the world need to do their part too, because the Jewish community has in the past been a leader in such areas as civil rights and other issues. There's absolutely no reason why our Jewish heritage shouldn't inspire us to be a leader in civil society as well. But we see today that Jewish communities, and especially in Israel, aren't sharing the values of the fight against climate change. How do you explain this disparity? I think to some extent it's a, inter it's a generational issue. In other words, I think the young people that I've met in the Jewish world are extremely aware that their future is in danger. And indeed, in the United States, there's already a Jewish youth climate movement with leadership in campuses in there. In fact, last year when I was in the Knesset, working with the organization at the time it was called Chazan, now it's called Adama, an umbrella group of Jewish environmentalists in the United States, we brought a delegation of campus leaders, climate activists, Jewish climate activists from top universities in the U.S. to come and be part of a delegation. They joined their Israeli counterparts, spent a week touring, doing an eco-tour of Israel, and they all went together to Sharm el-Sheikh, to the U.N. convention as a joint 
expression of solidarity. And, you know, we do have a problem in Israel with uh, a younger generation abroad that doesn't necessarily identify with Israel with the same intensity that, say, I did when I was growing up in the U.S. They are filled with the uh, history of recent history, which is far more, I would say, ambivalent with a lot less moral clarity than we had. But one area where they can probably feel that they identify with Israel is Israelis' deep and profound commitment to environmental protection. And when I saw the groups together and how well they interacted and the common language and concern, I really do think that for those of us who are concerned about Jewish continuity in general abroad, emphasizing the Jewish environmental link, the identity, that's a very, very important opportunity, and we need to foster that connection. We need to make every birthright group that comes to Israel have a strong environmental a component, an eco-tour, because ultimately, so much of the Jewish environmental perspective is based on the land of Israel. I always say you can't understand the Bible unless you sit and take a look at it. The land of Israel has to be your Rashi, your your commentator. So if you could stand there in uh, you know, the Elah Valley and see where David stood on the side of the hills of Judea and you saw where the chariots of the Philistines were in Goliath, then all of a sudden the story starts to make sense and the country is filled with that. And to understand our Jewish identity, you have to get with the program. I did a couple of sabbaticals in New Zealand and it was very weird to have Hanukkah during uh, the summertime when people were giving out bathing suits. It didn't make sense to me. Or poor people who live in Montreal and are trying to sit in a sukkah during the, uh, you know, the freezing cold months of October. This is crazy. Now, of course, we have a calendar rooted in the land of Israel, which we all share. So without casting aspersions on anybody's geographic choices, it is, I always believe, in Judaism, unlike the general notion that says, think globally, act locally. We have to act locally in your Jewish community, but think Think globally. Think about your Israeli, uh, your land of Israel as a source of inspiration. And as you say, and I've seen that in my community here in the United Kingdom, it has huge resonance for the younger generation. And so it's it's a win-win, really. Um, what can change the attitude of the Orthodox communities in Israel to climate change? That's a and particularly germane question for me because I'm wrapping up, a, I think, the first serious research, which is eva- uh, evaluating the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi environmental perspective. We interviewed over 700 members of the community, the Haredi community, which is a very, very complex and uh, variegated place. It's not like some kind of monolithic And we found some very interesting findings, but here's just one which will give you a sense of hope. This summer, 84% of Haredim said they're going out to nature as part of their vacation. We have this month called Benazmanim before the holidays comes in. And you can actually feel it when you go hiking and they leave behind a lot of trash too. But the point is that they have a strong impulse. They don't have a lot of money. They don't travel abroad, but they do like to go out to nature. And that's a good place to start from because if you don't love God's creation, not in an intellectual way, but in a very visceral way, it's very hard to get motivated to protect it. And so uh, I would say we have to work with the, uh, the, the the rabbis and the education. There is a basis for this. There is even a few ultra-Orthodox environmental groups. There's a group called Haredim Lesviva, uh, which is a pun on, you know, worried about the environment. And there's several initiatives which I've been uh, associated with. I think that the ultra-Orthodox community has a particularly, um, how should I put it, crowded and dense and unpleasant. They have a need for these open spaces and the ecosystems of the, of Israel. So that's maybe something we can appeal to. The Orthodox community in Israel, uh, the national religious, so to speak, I think they're uh, 
have a, they're very, very, how should I put it? Uh, I don't want to, again, come off as negative, but they have a very, very powerful passion for the land of Israel. And, and yet it isn't always reflected in their environmental attitudes. There are many great Israeli environmental leaders who are Orthodox. Uh, Yossi Leshen comes to mind for many years, the director of the Society for Protection of Nature in Israel, our leading uh, bird expert and ornithologist. Um, but and many, many more. There's an environmental organization of West Bank settlers called um, Environment Now, I guess you could translate it. So there is a strong core to work with. And I also, in the same way that I think that the environment can be a source of unity between diaspora communities in Israel, I think the Many different tribes in Israel, the secular, the traditional, Orthodox, and altars, we all would like to have our children breathe and not get uh, sick from with asthma. We'd like to turn the tap on the water, not be uh, drinks contaminated uh, chemicals and carcinogenics there. We share a love for the ecosystems of this land. And so I'm hopeful that the environment could be a serious source of unity at a time when the country seems to be a little bit at odds to find those common denominators. Amen. And that unity, as as you said, can also um, be used to to garner up regional unity, where we all share the same environmental challenges, um, whether in marine life, whether in clean air, whether in sustainable energy. It's it's. I see it as having so much potential from an international uh, cooperation perspective. You're absolutely right. The fact of the matter is, is that the peace agreements that have been signed with our Arab neighbors always contain environmental provisions. And some of them are very, very important. Um, unfortunately, the implementation has been weak, but that's not just the environmental realm. But for example, let's talk about the potential to create ecological corridors. You know, so many of our nature reserves here are no larger than a postage stamp ecologically. And if we want to create the kind of genetic biodiversity, which is critical to keep the remarkable um, wealth and richness of species in the region, we have to give these, particularly the mammals, move, space to move about so they don't get cloistered into what we call a, a, a sink mentality. And so by uh, creating transboundary peace parks, we could do a lot to help our shared ecosystems. Certainly, the air in the West Bank will never be clear unless the cars in Tel Aviv clean up their act, and the streams inside of Israel will never be swimmable and fishable and reasonable places unless the Palestinians start treating their sewage with a great deal more seriousness and commitment than they have until now. So we all need to improve so that we can share an environment together, and it would be wonderful. And in fact, there are many environmental organizations that I know in the Arab world with whom I work. Uh, I just don't think they necessarily reflect the government policies at present, but that too could change. Well, it seems like there is a lot of potential and um, a lot of scope for turning things around. Well, you know, whenever we celebrate a new year, we're not just celebrating a year. We're also celebrating, you know, Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of the planet. It's, that's the day when the world was created according to Jewish tradition. And it's a celebration. We're happy about that. Moving on, there's the famous Midrash in Ecclesiastics Rabbah, where the Holy One, blessed be he, takes Adam and introduces him to the Garden of Eden. He says, look well at this incredible world that I've created for you. And I created it for you. It's an anthropocentric view. He said, be careful that you do not spoil my world, for if you do, there's no one who can fix it up after you. This is the heart of the Jewish perspective. And I think we all, as we look 
forward to the new year and everybody does their own cheshbon nefesh, their own introspection about how they can be better. Let's include the creation and our commitment to keeping this planet a healthier place as part of our own commitment for the new year. Certainly as Jews, we can all do better to leave this planet a healthier place for our children. Amen. Professor Alontal, thank you so much for joining us and for all your insights. Well, thanks to you, and I salute you for making the environment a priority on this very, very important podcast. I hope all the listeners appreciate it and, and move forward to make this a better place to live. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. So, we got the general picture of the relationship between Judaism and the environment, but let's dive into the details. Professor Leo Hellman is a professor of international relations at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, who specializes in political economy, energy, and energy politics. One of his many areas of research is a very interesting starting point to explore the relations between religious communities and the environment and the conflicts these relations can create. Leo, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Efrat. It's lovely being here. Leo, your research is focused on kosher electricity. Tell us, what is it exactly? I guess kosher electricity wouldn't be something that uh, people hear for the first time, but most people think about kosher electricity, particularly in the concept of direct consumption. But let me start from the beginning. Um, as, as many of us know, uh, the observance of the Shabbat, uh, the seventh day, right, is a central pillar for uh, in the Jewish in the Jewish faith. And according to the Jewish faith, uh, one uh, should not be working uh, or doing any labor during Shabbat. Now there are some sixty uh, days uh, a year of Shabbat. Uh, if I also include the holidays, when uh, the same prohibitions that relate to Shabbat also apply by uh, by and large. Now, during Shabbat, and this is according to the halacha and also the responsa, there are 39 categories of activities of which, uh, which we call the lametet avot melacha, from which Jews must refrain during uh, the Shabbat. In Judaism, there is a very strong consensus, particularly among the, the, the orthodoxy, uh, whether it's ultra-orthodox or, or what we call in, in Israel national religious, that the use of electricity during the Shabbat is, is prohibited if it is operated directly by a Jew. Now, what does it mean? It means that I am not allowed to switch or to turn on electricity during, uh, during Shabbat. I'm also not allowed uh, to uh, change uh, let's say if I've got the radio on, I cannot uh, turn it, uh, turn the volume uh, uh, down. What can I do in terms of consumption? I can, for example, turn on the radio before Shabbat and have it running uh, during Shabbat. I can do the same also uh, with the air conditioning, uh, so long as I do not uh, change its setting uh, during Shabbat. But if we zoom out for a moment, there was no electricity at the time of the Bible. So how do we reconcile these technological advances in halacha? So this is a really uh, fascinating question. You know, we wouldn't have been Jews, right, if we wouldn't have disagreements. There is a huge disagreement uh, why uh, this is so. So initially, when electricity was discovered, people thought that this is actually like fire, right? Uh, but then they realized it's not fire, it's something else. Uh, so one version... Uh, was that uh, the tungsten wire is might not be burning, but it makes uh, or generates heat and light, which are uh, in many respects equivalent 
to what the halakha and the Torah uh, forbid. Then came uh, a very influential uh, rabbi, uh, which is is actually cardinal for for our case of, of the kosher electricity, uh, Rabbi uh, the Chazonish, Rabbi Avraham uh, Karelitz, uh, and he said that uh, the closing of an electrical circuit is equivalent to the completion of a product, which is what we call striking the final hammer blow, makebe patish. Uh, so this was one uh, one interpretation. Another one. Uh, was that uh, perhaps a little more controversial? That is like uh, comparing an electric current to the um, uh, creating something something new, which is called the uh, molid. But but the major issue is that the uh, beyond the direct use of electricity, what we have here is the issue of uh, production of electricity. So Jews are not allowed to benefit from any product which was produced during Shabbat if it was produced by uh, by a Jew. And here in a modern state, 1984 uh, Israel, uh, one needed electricity in the you know the, the uh, main electricity uh, system, also for life-saving uh, activities such as you know for hospitals, for the, for police, army, and so on. So the uh, the consensus was. Uh, by the vast majority of the orthodoxy, uh, that uh, we need large-scale uh, electricity uh, pr- production and distribution during uh, during Shabbat uh, for these uh, for these life-saving uh, activities, and therefore the Jews that uh, use uh, electricity indirectly in the manner I, I explained earlier uh, can benefit. However, uh, this Rabbi Karelitz, the Chazonish, was very insistent already in 1984 against this. And he said that doing so is actually a disgrace of the name uh, of God. Uh, it means that uh, people are perhaps uh, even using more than they should have uh, used, that we are producing more electricity than, uh, than needed. And therefore, this notion of kosher electricity uh, was born uh, and the kosher electricity communities evolved. What was their solution for using electricity on Shabbat? There, there were a number of of, of solutions which were uh, used by uh, by the kosher electricity communities. Now, when we're talking about kosher electricity communities, we're talking today about some fifty thousand uh, households, which is quite a lot. It could be around uh, 250,000 people in Israel. Uh, so this is a, quite a big number of of uh, people using it. We're talking mainly about. Lithuanian uh, Jews who are following the scripts and the rulings of of the Chazonish. Now, what they do is that uh, they use diesel generators, which are highly uh, polluting. These diesel generators are located in very dense areas where, you know, they were told you it's not something that was planned initially. So they just locate the, uh, the, uh, the generator where it is. It has been existing for many years, by the way. We're talking about several decades that these uh, diesel generators are in operation. And during Shabbat and Yom Tov, or holidays, what uh, they do is that they illegally disconnect from the grid. Only the Israel Electric Company is allowed to tamper with the grid. They illegally disconnect from the grid and connect to these diesel uh, generators, which are constantly operating during uh, Shabbat on uh, on diesel and the, usually there is a, a non-Jew there that uh, if something happens turns the electricity on this is one solution another solution which is widely used and is sometimes also used uh, in parallel to the generators is the, the usage of batteries so uh, for many years the it was the use of of car batteries simple as as it sounds so imagine a car battery 
which we know is full of acid, uh, inside your house. And from the battery runs all sorts of wires to different kinds of appliances at home. And uh, the kids are playing around uh, and so on. This is actually part of, part of the uh, problem. Uh, today, uh, kosher electricity communities, particularly those who are uh, more remote from the main uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, neighborhoods or cities or individuals who live in uh, uh, not in these cities they, uh, they they use the batteries sometimes they use now uh, lithium batteries which are connected to the uh, to the electricity board these are the two main uh, uh, solutions part of the transformation that uh, currently exists is that people are increasingly also using solar panels uh, at home but it's not that straightforward. I was about to actually ask you about the uh, the use of solar panels because that's something that's that you see increasingly being used in Israel well has been used for, for decades is that something that's more fully integrated now into the ultra orthodox community first of all the answer is no <laughs> I'd say if, uh, by and large no but there is an increasing use of solar panels Um, but this is usually done by people who are a little more well-off. Solar panels are, are costly, um, but you would, you would find it on certain institutions. Some, some yeshivas and some, and some uh, synagogue uh, do use them. But when we're talking about solar panels, uh, one has to remember that uh, according to the law, solar panels in Israel are not off-grid. It means that uh, uh, the energy that is produced by the solar panels does not go directly into your house. It goes into the electricity grid and the electrons that you are consuming uh, could be electrons that are actually consumed somewhere else in the country. And therefore, it doesn't really solve the problem so long as, 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 uh, as you're not off-grid. What is possible is that uh, some of these people, what they do is that they store electricity. They, they store electricity during... Uh, weekdays and then they consume they use the batteries to uh, to uh, uh, operate appliances during uh, during Shabbat and this is consistent with halacha and this is not a problem for ultra orthodox uh, but again having said that it's not a, it's still something that uh, we remember it's it's not on mass uh, to put solar panels requires space uh, ultra orthodox communities usually live in dense uh, areas Uh, high-rising uh, buildings the roof also serves other purposes uh, and it's still the same size of the roof if we're talking about a two floors building and a, and a 10 floors building so the amount of electricity that can be produced and the amount of, of solar radiation also in densely populated uh, areas is not is not uh, very significant so there are many uh, problems uh, in this uh, one more issue which uh, is important to Uh, to mention is that uh, we are increasingly seeing uh, solutions in electricity in general uh, related to storage. They're still uh, quite costly, but uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, kosher electricity communities do not object this, but they do not believe that uh, storage uh, can serve their needs, particularly when it comes to a 48-hour scenario. So when you have, for example, a, a holiday uh, come uh, together with, with a Shabbat, Uh, and this is still a major issue uh, for them. But in principle, it's, it is consistent with, uh, with Shabbat. Is it possible to make the change organic, to make a change in, in a positive direction that, that makes everyone a winner, even um, that, that supersede the traditional values so that it is an organic change evolution, so to speak? I mean, to do something which would be... Uh, 
beneficial, let's say, for everyone would be probably to switch the whole the whole system to a renewable energy system. Now, I just want to say one thing. Renewable energy is not green energy. This is like, it's not environmentally friendly. It's climate friendly. It doesn't pollute gases, but it is not environmental. It has a major environmental footprint, negative footprint, which we need to remember. Having said that, technologically, I don't think we're there uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, let's say if we only wanted to uh, help uh, those who want kosher electricity and and set up uh, large uh, solar panel uh, fields or, or wind turbines, uh, it would be very difficult to do it in proximity to where these consumers uh, live because uh, these are urban areas and there's very little space over there. It would also be a little problematic. Uh, there are some questions, Mark, on what I'm saying here, but uh, and there is a debate on it. But uh, creating storage uh, facilities somewhere else and producing the electricity somewhere else and then, and then transmitting it to these locations is also problematic because storage uh, needs to be uh, done in, uh, in proximity to where it is uh, produced. Then there are other solutions. Some solutions uh, uh, think of ultra-orthodox uh, neighborhoods as places or cities as places where could be create like a mini-grid. So uh, these uh, would be places where we place, uh, let's say, power plants like uh, picking power plants. These are power plants that uh, are usually powered by gas. This is, it's better than coal, but it's also not so environmental uh, friendly and not climate friendly. Um, and these power plants will come into operation uh, only during uh, Shabbat or when there is a problem for the whole grid. And, and during Shabbat, uh, they will run automatically and, and they will operate in a mini-grid uh, framework which isolates this grid from the rest of the grid. And then comes the question, who's going to pay for that? I mean, we are talking about an investment which is huge. We're talking about, uh, it's not millions, okay? It's far more than, than millions. Uh, and uh, I would I would imagine that this will create a major outcry among uh, the secular and also the orthodox uh, population in Israel, uh, and uh, and I don't see this this happening uh, so so quickly. Uh, there are things underway. There is a debate. I don't. I'm not sure the general public is well aware of it. One solution which is advocated actually by ultra orthodox is that the Israel Electric Company will do that. And the Israel Electric Company is very happy uh, to do it because the Israel Electric Company is now forbidden, according to the 2018 uh, electricity reform, to produce more electricity. So we are now uh, switching into a market which is more private sector uh, production. But if electricity, if this kosher electricity will produce, be produced by the Israel Electric Company, it will be easier to hide these costs from the general public. And I think this is the reason why uh, both the company and uh, some of those uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, uh, advocates for, for this kind of solution are interested in it. There are other, other uh, solutions, but it won't be easy to find a win-win uh, solution. I think a win-win solution, a, a, a whole system solution would be immensely costly, perhaps not even feasible uh, to have a, a, a whole state electricity system that runs uh, uh, like that on, on kosher electricity. It sounds like a very complex issue with lots of differing policies, preferences, and uh, health and safety issues. Does the issue create any conflicts as well? It creates a number of conflicts. I think that uh, one conflict which, which needs to be flagged uh, is, is a conflict with the state. 
I mean, uh, this whole system is is an illegal system. It's illegal for for many many reasons. First of all, uh, these installations are placed in places where uh, there is no permit for them. Then there is the issue of um, the installations are actually connected to the grid or connected to household, and the grid is disconnected, uh, which is also illegal, uh, as I as I earlier uh, uh, mentioned. So what we have here, we have actually uh, a quite interesting thing. We have a street level, if you want to call it like street level regulation, where a whole illegal market uh, developed here. Uh, there is a demand for kosher electricity. There are those who supply, and I'll mention that in a second. Um, and uh, the state doesn't really enforce uh, the law against it. And this has happened for, uh, for many years. Uh, we can speak perhaps later on why this is the case. Uh, now, there is also the issue when it comes to this illegal market is that most of the setups of, of these uh, diesels are, are done by what in Hebrew is called gemach, gemilut chesed. These are like NGOs uh, for charities, but in fact, they are uh, businesses. They are businesses that are run uh, by people uh, who make profit. Uh, they actually are a monopoly in each of their uh, area, so they can play the price, uh, uh, and people are hostage to these uh, to these prices. And they also exert influence on rabbis uh, for uh, that they will uh, allow this to continue happening without uh, enforcement. And and these people, if they are not uh, paying taxes because they are considered to be charities and they are not regulated, they also have very little incentive to observe issues of health and safety, issues which relate to the environment and so on and so forth. So this is one, I think, one big tension uh, uh, that we have. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Professor Herman, from a more broad perspective, what does your research tell us about the relations between Judaism and the environment? So I, I, I first should say I, um, this is an offshoot of part of my research. I'm, I'm not an expert uh, on religious issues. Um, I did look at, at uh, kosher electricity, but I also looked at, at the Amish community and its relations uh, with electricity, which are quite interesting. There is some resemblance with the mindset behind uh, behind the two but i would say that uh, like like other religions like uh, like islam and like uh, christianity you can find in the scripts or what sometimes we call the echo theology of it uh, that there are many things which are consistent with environmental uh, issues and there are things which which run against it so i would say that um by and large, one can can uh, portray this tension within Judaism is that, according to uh, Judaism, the conflict is that on the one hand, man is above nature and uh, is reconfiguring nature according to its own uh, needs and and utility, and on the other hand, uh, as we know, you know, leovdav leshomra, the Jews have a duty to protect, respect, and preserve nature. This is God's creation. So this tension uh, exists, and uh, like in many other things, uh, we have to play uh, along these lines. I would say that the kosher electricity uh, issue um, puts Shabbat, the sanctity of Shabbat, above everything for these communities. 
it puts it puts Shabbat above uh, above everything. One can argue, for example, uh, and and this is not uh, a necessarily a theological approach. This is my own interpretation that if we are facing a climate crisis, it's not a crisis actually. It's a, it's beyond the crisis. It's a, it's a situation. If we're facing climate change, which may lead to the extinction of humanity, which has a toll in uh, of of human life. Uh, throughout the world, uh, including Jews uh, and others, then there is the issue of pikuach nefesh. Then this uh, issue needs to be uh, reconsidered uh, in terms of the solutions which we can provide to uh, produce and consume electricity in ways which are consistent with our climate needs for the sake of, of safeguarding uh, human lives and uh, uh, in parallel with uh, the uh, requirement and the duty to observe Shabbat. You mentioned issues with the Amish community. What are the similarities? For the sake of, of brevity, I would say, you know, Amish, Amish communities, um, they have issues with electricity, not because it's forbidden. It's because uh, electricity can allow you to do things which will take you further away from your community. So they uh, have no problems with a bicycle. Electric bicycles will take you further away. And because the communities prioritize, Therefore, they limit their use of electricity. They use uh, batteries and so on. They don't use uh, wide-scale um, electricity. What I find quite interesting is a, is a very interesting quote by, by a prominent uh, uh, rabbi who said the following. He said, those who think that electricity is uh, prohibited on Shabbat have no idea what electricity is all about. And then he continued and he said, and those who think that electricity is permitted on Shabbat have no idea what Shabbat is all about. And I think that really sums it up because electricity, even if you can find all the halachic uh, sort of uh, ways around it, eventually permits you to do things uh, that uh, perhaps will take the Oneg Shabbat away from you. That's another interpretation of this kosher electricity uh, issue. Do you think that eventually the environmental problems issues will feature a little bit higher on the ultra-Orthodox agenda? So this is also an excellent question. Um, I've, I've been interviewing people uh, in the ultra-Orthodox community and uh, you know, been reading a lot about it. And it's, it's not a, a secret that uh, environmental issues feature less uh, on the agenda of the Orthodox community, not because necessarily ultra-Orthodox uh, do not want to have uh, clean air uh, and enjoy uh, you know, fresh water and clean streets and, and, go and good environment. But there are, there are a number of reasons why uh, this is the case. One, one is an objective uh, reason. Uh, we see throughout the world that uh, environmental uh, uh, prioritization uh, is correlated with the uh, with living standards, and uh, the uh, ultra orthodox community is is less well off related to uh, the rest of the general population in Israel, which means that they prioritize first of all their uh, immediate needs uh, rather than uh, these issues. But we do see increasingly growing awareness. But uh, as I've been told by by several uh, ultra orthodox environmental activists, uh, this will be 
put aside when it conflicts with Shabbat. So even if uh, there is an issue, uh, an environmental issue, as we discussed, uh, with polluting uh, diesel uh, generator, and we're talking about the diesel generator, it's not just uh, the pollution uh, in terms of uh, particular matters and gases and so on. We're talking about uh, acids and electrification. We're talking about uh, um, noise pollution, and and, uh, and and many other uh, hazards, uh, environmental hazards. This will be put aside when it comes to uh, the observant of, uh, of, of Shabbat. There are other reasons why uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, perhaps pay lesser attention to environmental issues. Uh, there is the concentration on studying and, and uh, Torah and uh, Halacha and less uh, dealing with the everyday uh, sort of uh, problems of, of life. This is a, a, a tradition. Uh, Ultra-Orthodox communities in the, uh, you know, before the State of Israel was, uh, was uh, created uh, didn't really take part in running uh, the uh, municipal political life of, their, of, 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 their, of the cities where they, uh, they, uh, they lived, and they never developed this sort of attachment to nature and so on. So there are many uh, ways to explain it. I would say, however, uh, because we do need to be some, somewhat optimistic here, that there is a gradual change. What's the role of leadership in the adaptation to these new environmental values, given all of these very complex issues to balance at the same time? So when you're asking me leadership, I, I assume that you're talking about the ultra-Orthodox leadership. And First of all, I'll say that ultra-Orthodox leadership is, is, is crucial here because uh, in, these, in these communities, within the ultra-Orthodox community, although we know that there are general trends where some of the authority of the rabbis is, is disintegrating and so on, it is still very powerful in, in several respects. Uh, rabbis are influential in influencing not only uh, religious aspects and uh, community aspects, but also individual uh, behavior of uh, of their followers, uh, who consult them on on many aspects uh, of of their life, from little to uh, big aspects, and therefore they have a, a very important uh, role to play. Not to mention that these are the people who send the ultra orthodox politicians. They decide on these politicians. They send the politicians. The politicians follow what they say within a number of uh, ultra-Orthodox parties in the Knesset. So they play a major role. What kind of role they play? I, I think that up until today, it's actually a negative role. Uh, and it, it's very sad that this is the case. Um, I think they've been uh, initially, uh, and I'm talking about several decades ago, they've been uh, playing, and there are, and one, I, I want to I put a, a sort of a parenthesis here, because it's not just a religious issue, okay? It's connected also to economic uh, issues and so on. And when I mentioned the, these uh, charities that produce electricity, these are people in their community, and they lobby the rabbis, and in dec several decades ago, uh, the rabbis used to uh, uh, lo lobby the government in order to uh, cater for the interests of these, of these people. But today, uh, they are very strict on 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 the kosher electricity, and the and they want a solution right now. Uh, and uh, if you want a solution right now, then uh, they are promoting diesel generators, even if these diesel generators will be uh, substitute for gas uh, produced generators and so on, it will be legitimized. It might solve some of the health and safety hazards that are associated with this uh, issue, and which exert also inner ultra-Orthodox 
pressure on the rabbis. But these are not consistent uh, with uh, environmentally friendly uh, aspects. So I think since they uh, try to uh, cater for short-term uh, solutions, uh, these are not really conducive to environmental-friendly uh, solutions. Is there anything that um, kind of convening rabbinic authorities would do? So to have the rabbis discuss amongst themselves of different, different rabbinic authorities from all of the different ultra-Orthodox communities? It's a very complicated issue because we we've actually have a little of a natural experiment here because uh, back in 2010, the Minister of Energy, then uh, Uzi Landa, wanted to have a, a kosher electricity bill, which will, which while Israel was transiting to a gas from coal, he wanted to uh, sort of create a, a, a wide Israeli electricity, uh, kosher electricity system. Whether this is, was feasible or not, that's, that's another question. But what is more interesting is that it was not only secular people who came against that, it was also the ultra-Orthodox communities or the kosher electricity communities who went against that because uh, the minister wanted to give the authority uh, to uh, administrate the bill to the uh, chief rabbinate. And uh, the ultra-Orthodox do not accept the authority of the chief rabbinate. So it will be very difficult, I think, to put them all together and decide because we, we have these problems um, of, of having discussions among different kinds of uh, streams within uh, Judaism, even within or only orthodoxy. I'm not even talking about progressive and, and other streams of, of Judaism. Uh, I don't give uh, many hopes for it, but perhaps the climate urgency uh, will necessitate that if it, if it is framed in the, in the appropriate way. If you want to add another level of, of, of complexity and interest, I was also thinking, you know, how would Sfardi Poskim look at it? Who are, who tend to be more um, inclusive and, and, you know, less, uh, a, a little less, you know, machmir as they say, but it's, but whether you could even have a dialogue kind of between the, the, the two, I think we should, we should, we should convene uh, some sort of a big dialogue on it and, and see what happens. I find, by the way, that there is a, a ratchet uh, uh, movement here because initially this uh, kosher electricity issue was a very sort of uh, specific Chazon Ish, Lithuanian Jews, then it sort of uh, spread further to Lithuanian other... Uh, parts of the Lithuanian Ju uh, Judaism and Ashkenazi Jews. But increasingly, what we've seen uh, over the last couple of years, that it's also been picked up by uh, Sephardic, some Sephardic uh, Jews and some Sephardic uh, rabbis. I think sometimes, and this is my own interpretation, I'm not sure uh, they would agree, but I see it as an opportu opportunistic uh, approach, but we've seen it in several ultra-Orthodox cities where uh, this has been picked up also by uh, non-Ashkenazi communities. And to, to, to take it to the next level and to make it somehow adapt to kosher, to the kind of ultra, ultra, ultra orthodox kosher electricity communities, that's you know, absolutely one, one massive task. It's fascinating. In Israel, 70% of the water that we drink are desalinated water. These water are desalinated using electricity. So... What happens uh, when we're talking about drinking uh, water during Shabbat, which was produced by uh, desalination facilities which operated on non-kosher electricity? Is it permitted or not? There are so many questions involved in it. Uh, in many ways, there is no end. 
to the kosherness uh, uh, issue. Leo, are we at this place where we need to mobilize? Are we at crisis point? Like, where, where are we on the Richter scale? I mean, you know, I, I really think that it's not a crisis. You know, it's, it's a situation. It's not a crisis is something that is bound in time. Uh, and the crisis finishes at a certain point. But this is going to stay. And we need to learn how to adapt and mitigate climate change. Uh, and, and our duty, therefore, is twofold. Uh, we need to find ways to decrease our carbon footprint. And we need to find ways uh, to adapt to it in many, in many ways. Uh, I'm talking about climate, but also, uh, you know, environment, other environmental uh, ways of, of, of living. Israel, first of all, it, when, in the context of kosher electricity, this is a problem of Israel. It's not a problem of other Jewish communities around the world because in other communities, electricity is not produced by Jews. It's produced by non-Jews. So therefore, it's okay in the indirect sense of, of the world, of the production and transmission of electricity. But in Israel, we are good at innovation. Uh, there are many climate solutions, there are many environmental solutions. We're less good at implementation. Part of what we uh, should emphasize and concentrate more is on implementing it ourselves within our communities around the world and for the rest of the world. Climate tech and environmental tech in Israel is booming. It's a very vibrant uh, community. Something that our work together at the World Jewish Congress um, has also addressed because we are in contact with Jewish communities all over the globe. I, I, I know that this is something that you've been considering from the World Jewish Congress perspective as well. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? If you look at it throughout the world, I'll start with a general remark. If you look at it throughout the world and we're trying to assess what is the role of religion or religious actors uh, in promoting sustainability and, and environmental values, one of the things that uh, uh, we observe is when you look, for example, at, at churches and certain, uh, and certain mosques is that uh, religious actors want their followers to come. They want them to come to church. They want them to come to synagogue. They want to come to the mosque. And uh, the young generation, and I don't think it's only the young generation, I think it's today, it's, it's everybody. Uh, environmental issues feature much higher on their agenda, particularly with climate change. Uh, we feel climate change every day. Uh, at this very day that we are speaking, uh, we feel this here uh, in Tel Aviv and, and also in London. And therefore, uh, if the World Jewish Congress wants to... Uh, stay a relevant organization for Jewish communities and Jewish needs, it needs to expand, not necessarily to substitute the activities that, that it runs today, but it needs to expand its agenda also to the issues of climate change and, and, and the environment. Uh, because this is what matters uh, to Jews. Uh, we talked a bit about uh, eco-theology and Judaism with respect uh, to the environment. So uh, the values are there. Uh, there are values which can be promoted. I think Jews also see the duty of tikkun olam, uh, mending the world. It's not just we do it only for Jews. We do it uh, for everybody. And Jews can play a very, very powerful uh, role in this in many aspects. As the World Jewish Congress, we can certainly uh, uh, run our activities in a, in, in a more environmentally friendly uh, way. And we do that more and more at the World Jewish Congress by offsetting uh, emissions, by uh, doing our activities in a more environmentally friendly uh, way, decreasing uh, flights, et cetera, et cetera. There are many things that we, that we already do. 
And I think that that's wonderful. But we also have a duty also to uh, orchestrate this and collaborate and coordinate this with our communities, offering uh, expertise, uh, help, uh, trying to have this process uh, running uh, from top down and bottom up so we can learn from activities of uh, that, that many Jewish communities around the world are, in, are engaged in. Uh, and this is part of, of staying relevant uh, and part of what we should do uh, because the environment is also a political issue. It's also a diplomatic issue. And this is what the World Jewish Congress I- is doing. So, Lior, as we always like to say in our WJC discussions, what is the bottom line? What can we do? The bottom line is that we must operate quickly. And uh, when, I, when we say the World Jewish Congress, it's Jewish communities all around the world. It's the state of Israel, and it's certainly the World Jewish Congress. It's not because it's a nice thing to do. We have no alternative. We must uh, prioritize this uh, immediately. It's the Jewish thing to do, and it's the right thing to do. Professor Leo Herman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. As awareness of climate change and environmental issues grow, it's important to ask, how can our Jewish identity guide us? And what are the answers it can provide us to address the burning question of our time? We explored some of these answers and pointed to some of the tensions and conflicts that arise in Jewish communities and within Jewish identity itself. But although such conflicts exist, we hope that our Jewish heritage and values can be used to solve some of them and to make this world a better, cleaner and safer place to live for us and for generations to come. Our heartfelt thanks go out to all our esteemed guests Professor Alon Tal and Professor Leo Herman for sharing their knowledge and helping us understand the relations between Judaism and the environment. Jewish World Podcast by the World Jewish Congress is on all podcasting platforms and all the links are available at podlist.net slash WJC Israel. I'm Dr. Afat Sofa. Thank you for listening. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Jewish World is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and more. Subscribe for updates on new episodes.